0: Log TALK RADIO The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L.I.V.E.
1: Hi, my name is John Carasella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, Gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome everyone to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carasella, And for today's Firefly Willows LIVE Roundtable, I'm joined by my co-hosts Hi, C. Lutmers. Hello. And Mildred Lynn McDonald.
2: Hello, John.
1: And for for our roundtable today, I want to share a a definition of love. Okay, My my friend and colleague, Charles Randall Paul, who's the founder of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, uh, this is a guy who's dedicated to fostering uh, the difficult conversation between people whose fundamental beliefs conflict. So, in other words, between religious rivals, right? So, he's, he's always looking to foster a kind of love and intimacy between what he calls respectful rivals. And so, you can imagine that there's, there's always tension in the room when uh, he brings people like that together. Uh, but here's what's interesting. He defines love and intimacy. And this is something that he's striving to sort of elicit and, and, uh, and create between these respectful rivals. He defines love and intimacy as not just the willingness, but the desire to be influenced. In other words, to be changed by another. The desire to be changed by another. And that's what he brings into a conversation between people whose fundamental beliefs conflict. So I think this is a really powerful uh a, a very powerful definition of the willingness and openness and the unconditionality of love. Uh and I can imagine in these conversations that he hosts that that how challenging this must be. But I took this home and I and I sort of made it personal. And I and I'm beginning to integrate this definition and reflect on it not not in this sort of rarefied conversation space but but as a real Uh, question of practice uh, that that for me to really be to love someone is to desire to be influenced by them and I just want to offer that uh, for our for our thoughts and consideration what do you guys think of that that definition of love
2: well John for me when I'm kind of going inside and thinking about it being with it you would have to detach from your beliefs and not be a stakeholder in your beliefs, bring them to neutral or bring them to, that's interesting. And also, it seems to me that your place of operating from or your vantage point would have to be your heart rather than your head.
1: Yeah, okay. So there's a, a relinquishing of the head. Actually, the whole idea of beliefs, that have structure, and are, that's kind of a head thing anyway, isn't it? I
2: think it is it is a head thing, but it can cause distortion or a blockage toward the heart energy.
1: Yes. I would agree in the context, certainly in the context of, you know, respectful rivals and uh, where, where we're talking about sort of esoteric things. But what about in, like, in the presence of family, you know, Mildred Lynn, does it, like the desire to be changed by family or community is that is that also a belief space thing is it a is it a head blocking the heart thing
2: for me i find when you were talking about the head and the heart and the blockage many beliefs create emotions or people get emotional around their beliefs and of course family is an area where there's a lot of emotion so I would say if you're looking at your beliefs in regard to your community, you have to put time and attention against that. But it even goes deeper with family. So I think the linchpin is the emotions and are you able to manage your emotions hmm. if you walk into this arena where you're going to put your beliefs in neutral and open your heart and be vulnerable.
1: Hmm. I see, yeah. What? So what do you think of this definition of love, I see?
2: Well, you know, it, it
3: struck me as interesting that because that the the definition was a quote uh, that you gave, that I'm assuming was a quote from what he says is the definition. Yeah, when it's, it's his definition. And so it, it struck me as to why he felt he needed to almost additionally or redefine the word influenced, because he says the desire to be influenced, in other words, changed by another. And there's a very big difference there, because I think that I can totally be on board with the definition of the willingness and the desire to be influenced by another, because I think that that's what attracts us to other people. I mean, we could even think of the idea of, you know, opposites attract or that kind of thing by coming into the influence of another person, it's going to theoretically have an effect on how we think, how we believe, et cetera. But it's not going to be that other person or even that other thing that's going to change us. And, and I don't think it's the, the responsibility of somebody else or love to change us, but it's that influence can have an effect on us, which may allow us to realize we need to or we want to choose to change something about ourselves. But it's not this outside person that's actually going to change us. And and that's one of those things that you hear about a lot of times, you know, as relationship issues, where one person keeps trying to change the other person in the relationship. And there's a big difference between if I live my life according to how I think, how I believe, according to my values, etc., and I'm around someone on a regular basis that sees that or experiences that that may influence them and cause them to change in some way if they see me living that and that resonates for them. But it's not because I changed them. Mm. It's because they chose to change as a result of the influence. So I'm perfectly fine with that idea of love being this uh, willingness and desire to be influenced by another because I think at either an obvious level or a subtle level, we're attracted to a person or in the case of a family, if I, you know, you could go esoteric, our soul chooses to be in that family because it knows that by being around those people and having those experiences, there is something about them that is not lacking per se, but maybe just questioning within ourselves mm-hmm. and therefore going into a more intimate relationship with them is going to allow me to see and experience what that difference may be and then i can see how that resonates with me and determine whether i need to or want to change something about myself as a result of now having that more in-depth intimate immediate experience with that right so so you you
1: draw a useful distinction between the desire to be influenced and the desire to be changed by another you leave the agency of change with the first party right so uh, i may be i may desire to be influenced by somebody but in the end the choice to change may be they may have influenced me to choose to change but i am not relinquishing my my agency about being changed right
3: it's it it needs to be my choice to change so if If I live in a family, since you wanted to do that one, if I live in a family that is very religious and goes to church, and I have decided as a teenager that I don't want to go to church because I don't necessarily believe that, the influence may be seeing how people live that religious belief, but it should be the choice of the person to change whether they go to church or not rather than being made to go to church by saying this change will be good for you. Yes, fair enough. So
1: does this definition feel any more vulnerable? Does it make you feel more vulnerable than some perhaps other ideas about what love is maybe that you've held?
2: John, for me, no. It doesn't seem to be more or less vulnerable when I was exploring it, what did come into me was the freedom that one would feel if you go into a situation where you're open to being influenced, you're open to change, you're open to make the choice to be changed. Mm. And what came into me was uh, a phrase that's often attributed to Voltaire, but actually it's not from him. But because I was thinking about you have this stance and how would you execute it in everyday life. It's the, I do not agree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. The context is freedom of speech. People often think Voltaire said this, but he didn't. It was Evelyn Beatrice Hull who wrote a book about Voltaire talking about his beliefs of all things. Mm. So for me, when I'm looking at Randall, Charles Randall Paul and the work that he does in terms of love and intimacy and I project to myself if I was doing something like that this would be a benchmark for me.
1: Mm. Yeah. I, I like the uh, I like feeling into this the idea of the freedom to be to be influenced to to let down my guard enough to be to actually seek out the influence the the exciting mixing uh, that might come from that uh, but it does require a kind of willingness to be
2: vulnerable then I would ask you John why do you have your guard up what are you guarding
1: Hi, what do you think <laughs>
2: Mildred, that's, a, that's a great
1: question actually uh, I I I don't know. Uh, I can't. I can't speak to it uh, in the moment, but I'm definitely guarding something, and I've probably been guarding it my whole life. I just
3: I'm not sure what it is. I fear that I cannot be nearly as scholarly as Mildred Lynn and and influence this question quite so deeply. But uh, um, you know, to that to that question about what are you guarding, I think people. Guard, because there is this fear of i've I've come to an understanding and a comfort and a familiarity for who and how I define myself. And if I let this guard down and something influences me to challenge or question or struggle with my self-definition, my beliefs, uh, value, whatever, then it will feel like chaos, I won't know what to do with it. I won't know who I am. Huh. And, and I think that that's often that fear of vulnerability is I'm afraid of losing my sense of who I am or giving up my sense of who I am or not knowing who I am if it comes into question or causes me to question it after all of this time. and And that's what I often think and see with people like that I see as clients. I think it's that sense of fear about having to go through that process of change um because it's easier to simply stay in what i know mm. and I don't know that this definition makes me feel more vulnerable, but I think what it does is it points up the importance of a vulnerability because the more we can open ourselves to it, I mean, people don't like to feel vulnerable, but we're making ourselves vulnerable if we're influenced or surrounded by someone or something that is challenging a belief we have held for a period of time. If we felt so certain about it and now something is causing us to question it, that's a very vulnerable state and it can go back to that sense of now I have to wrestle with who I am and what that means and all of that kind of thing. But the importance of that means I have the opportunity to grow and to evolve rather than to become stagnant and stuck in an ideology or a dogma, you know, or something like that. So it's, and vulnerability means I have to have the willingness to look inside.
1: But isn't there also a risk in vulnerability? I mean, like, I don't want to sidestep that there's when you choose when when one chooses to be vulnerable to the influence of another how what are the ways that, that that can go that that can go bad
3: well the the risk is that you have to be more conscientious and aware of who you allow yourself to be surrounded by and influenced by and when you recognize it may not be right for you There may be a fear of doing something. It's like if we go to family, people often think I have no choice, whereas people do have a choice of whether they spend time around those people or not. They can still love those people from a distance, but they can also choose to put themselves into harm's way by always being around where they know it's going to be a toxic or an unhealthy or a dangerous situation. And so vulnerability does run that risk. But that risk is only because we're making the choice to put ourselves in a vulnerable state around someone or something that we know to be somehow harmful or not beneficial for us.
2: I had an experience, John, when I first learned about energy medicine. My background is in science. And I have a science mind, which may surprise you when high see, which I do. <laughs> And so I remember years ago I went to a three-day workshop and my beliefs were heavily entrenched in science and what I had dedicated my you know, university education to and whatever. And I ended up at this little workshop and they were talking about energy work. And basically it was a whole different paradigm. I was open to it, but it was too much. And I think this is where the vulnerability might come in. I was very much open to it. It was too much all at once. And I had a very visceral reaction <laughs> to the truth of energy medicine versus the belief system I had bought into for science. And I'm not taking away from science. I'm just talking from a medical model and how the body works as a whole. And as I said, I had a ver- I was very vulnerable. I was open. I had a visceral reaction and <laughs> what was the visceral reaction? I got sick as a dog.
1: Oh my goodness!
2: I I just couldn't stomach it. I couldn't stomach. Literally. Literally, they had. I had to be taken home from the workshop.
1: Wow. I
2: was sick. Yes. Now the instructor was very kind, and she drove me home. And she had a science background. She said, Mildred Lynn, don't feel bad. The same very same thing happened to me. And I ended up getting really sick in the back of a car. <laughs> but but the thing is, I had an entrenched belief system. I walked in open. I was vulnerable. I didn't understand that I would be receiving a whole um, big energy wave of information that I couldn't stomach, and I got it all at once. And that it worked out okay after three days passed and I became aware of my body and what was really going on. I was able to work through it. I'm wondering if when you're talking about making yourself vulnerable, if that's a fear or a concern that it might be overwhelming or it might be such a shift in what your belief system is that it may impact you on different levels.
1: Yeah. Well, I think think that's one of the things that I wanted to tease out is, um, you know generally speaking people don't like to to feel vulnerable uh and here we are uh talking about l- love something that we all desire to be a participant in and in communion with uh r- sort of requiring us to be vulnerable and you know what do, you, what do what do we do about that you know like um i just want to i want to touch on this you know jesus jesus said love your enemies right in this definition, how you know how does how does this definition how does this definition make you feel in the presence of that statement? Love your enemies. What do we what do we do with that?
3: Well, for me, that, first of all that would be love with a capital L, and that's very different. And I'll go back to something I was saying before. This doesn't mean that I have to invite an enemy into my home that could be dangerous but what it means is i can still see that enemy as a human being so i don't have to be say hellbent on killing them but how do we how do we, how do we desire to be influenced by an enemy by being vulnerable enough to open ourselves to try to understand where they're coming from why they think the way that they do and seeing that their humanity in, in a sense by saying, you know, they may not be going about it the right way or, or in a, a, a safe way or whatever, but a healthy way. Um, however, what they're doing is really the same thing I'm doing. Which is trying to find a meaning for life or trying to feel loved or trying to be a part of something or whatever it is. And so it's that that deeper sense of love says, I'm going to go deeper and see you as the same as me in the sense that you are having the human experience the same way I am. And therefore, even though maybe the way you're doing it, even if it's not necessarily wrong, it may be harmful for me to be around that. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing something wrong. It just doesn't mean that it's right for me. right? Um, You know, and so being able to see that on that level also takes vulnerability and the risk. See, and there the risk is, and this goes back to that idea of people having self definitions around things because the risk there means, then what do I do with the anger or the hate that I had towards that enemy? Because that anger and that hate is what, defined me, is what propelled me, is what allowed me to see the world in a certain way and, and live in that way. And when that starts to go away, then what? What do I do when I have that empty place where the anger was because I now see this person differently? Mm. And and that's a big risk for people because, again, it goes back to I then won't know who I am and I won't know what to do with that.
1: Mm. Mildred Lynn, your thoughts on loving your enemies, being willing to be influenced by them, desire, influence?
2: I think I see. You did an excellent job. Okay. I would just repeat, ditto.
3: <laughs> okay, so what... Can, can, can I can I say something back to what Mildred had, her little story? Oh, yes. The, I the... see it
2: was a big story.
3: Because <laughs> 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 she's a Leo, so it's always a big story. <laughs> um, but you know her story represented that risk of vulnerability and yes it may have been too much all at once and it was a good thing that she was willing to step away from that and recognize that the key though is the 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 risk would become am i going to remain open and vulnerable to that or am i going to shut down So she could have shut down and said, okay, obviously that energy stuff is too much for me and so I'm just going to not even go there and I'm just going to stay in my science place. Or we can say, okay, that was too much, but that doesn't mean that I don't gently wade back into those waters and find a way to explore that in proportion to what it is I can handle each step of the way. And so either we shut down or put the guards up Or we risk remaining vulnerable knowing if I take a little bit too much of a step, I might feel literal physical discomfort, but that just means I need to step back a little bit rather than shut down and run away and never go there.
1: Hmm. So there's a willingness to experience discomfort that comes along with this.
3: And knowing when to either slow the pace, step back a little bit and go a little bit slower or whatever um rather than just saying no and shutting down because oh that was uncomfortable therefore I'm not going there mm.
1: so this this sort of leads into my my final question which is uh what can we do to be authentically open and vulnerable in the presence of intimacy that by its nature could end up changing us
0: for
2: me john i feel that you have to value being Vulnerable and open, make a commitment to that as a first step.
1: Hmm. I like that you have to to choose to choose to be in that space is is a choice, and you have to value it above something else
2: and then the other part of that in terms of how you execute it is you can be open and vulnerable, but as high C spoke to, maybe sometimes it's a little bit too much. The good news is. You can use breathing techniques. You can use nature. You can anticipate that you're walking into these situations. You may have a visceral reaction or some other form of trigger reaction that might be uncomfortable. There's wonderful ways. Music. There's wonderful ways that you can manage yourself and still remain open and vulnerable without having a severe reaction. Mm -hmm. Stepping away is one high see mentioned. I like that.
3: Right.
1: Hi do you have any other thoughts about that?
3: Well, I would say that it's about overcoming or not giving into to fight-or-flight syndrome so that you don't immediately think either I have to fight against this or react against this, and I also don't immediately think I have to run away from this just because it's different or uncomfortable or challenging me on a, a deeper level. Uh, and, and it's we can step back, Because we can say, okay, you know what? (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready for all of this, so I need to step back and take a little time to process. But it's that willingness to then continue to step into, even if it means a smaller step or in a smaller proportion, so that we continue to go there because the discomfort is actually the sign that it is something that needs us to explore it, to see what it has for us. We may not take it all on completely and wholeheartedly, but it does mean that there is something there that is challenging us at a deeper level. Therefore, there's something valuable for us to gain from it, and we need to at least explore it enough to see if we can get that little nugget or that little taste that may be all we need from it. But still, at least we will have gained that and been influenced by that rather than having completely missed out on that altogether.
1: Mm -hmm. Very good. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much for your as always, your uh, powerful wisdom. Uh, so uh, that's all for our roundtable. I want to thank my co-hosts, Hi-C and Mildred Lynn, and we'll be right back.
0: Have a great show, John. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, and lightning and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E helping you find and shine your inner light.
1: Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasella. My guest for today's spirited conversation is Charles Randall Paul. Randall has an MBA from Harvard University and a PhD from the University of Chicago, writing his dissertation on ethical methods for engaging in religious conflict. He's the founder and president of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, a foundation that aims to build trust between religious critics and rivals. He's organized initiatives for dialogue in Egypt and Iran and has produced a documentary on religious conflict in America. He's lectured in Europe, Russia, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and China. He currently works as co-founder and chairman of The World Table, which has developed a plug-in commenting system for websites desiring civil and honest public conversations. Randall, welcome to the show.
4: Good to be here, John.
1: So you had a you had a pretty significant career in commercial real estate. And then sometime in midlife, you decided to go back to school and get a degree, to get a doctorate. What was that about?
4: When I left uh, my um, undergraduate years, I realized I was keenly interested in combining the intellectual life with public life in some way. And I saw business as an instrumental means of making enough money to buy my freedom, Mm. to be able to uh, write and say what I wanted without beholding to any institution or school of thought and in politics if i went there to be able to also make my effort one of service and not a career okay so i i had a plan from the very get go to get out of business as fast as possible
1: ah, okay.
4: and uh, i said to myself i'm going to be out of it and Six or seven years and it took me sixteen years. But I had enough aside then to be able to bail out and go back to school and start my
1: effort. And why that particular program? What were you what were you actually seeking to get from that program?
4: The University of Chicago Committee on Social Thought is a unique program in that it is explicitly interdisciplinary and you come in with a Key question that you were going to study and uh, one would hope add something to the world of knowledge uh, regarding that question and I was keenly interested in the theological problem and philosophical problem you can have you can be interested in this problem as a theist or an atheist of worldviews that are fundamentally unreconcilable or irresolvable and how in a in an intermixing global society we were going to be able to maintain any kind of peaceful and flourishing relationships between cultures whose worldviews were so different in many respects. And so I wanted to study uh, religious or ideological conflict from the standpoint of the insider in various philosophical and religious traditions. I wanted to understand how people in the world saw conflict itself with the other, with the outsider, and whether they were taught, if you will, by their philosophical or religious leaders to engage in conflict in certain ways versus other ways. And what did you find? Well, I found that uh, there was an array of, of answers on that question. Um, so this is from from the perspective of
1: somebody inside uh, a religious uh, discipline or tradition, tradition
4: or a philosophical uh, one. Philosophical.
1: How how they are um, coded, how are they are programmed to to address conflict?
4: That's right. Both within their own communities, in the form, if you will, of heresy. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, those who attack purity, right? right? Right. Or outside their community, those who are contaminating the world with either falseness or direct evil, right? Mm-hmm. How how are they taught to engage or not engage? Right. Okay. There are groups that say the only way to deal with this conflict is to evade or avoid it completely by enclaving, by quarantining oneself. Yes, that was that was my. And so, and so, that was my cut. Their conflict was both within the community and exterior to the community, and they had slightly different ways of handling both those issues.
1: So, how broad was the array? I mean, is, are, are there any summary thoughts you can offer about what you discovered?
4: Yes, I can. I can say that uh, first of all, I think your audience will be interested to understand that whether you're on the right or the left, no matter how open-minded or narrow-minded you are from a from the standpoint of social psychology there are real threats out there for you there are there there are people out there who are downright dangerous in their ideas and it doesn't take a monolithic absolutist to want to silence the opposition
1: okay right i think that's yeah so
4: if we if I, i want the whole audience to realize we are all implicated in this i could i could Make your flesh crawl. If I got to know you a little bit better, I, I, there would be something that you would find very dangerous in the world that you would want, you'd be very tempted to silence, right. if not worse. Right, right. And it's once you get into that mode of thought, and you can say you can be an atheist and still have that worry, that concern, now we're there.
1: Okay, this is really important, and I, and I, I appreciate you bringing this up so early in our conversation, because this really is why you're on convergence, right? This show is not a, not yet anyway, uh, a political sociological show. It's a show about science and mysticism and how we come to understand ourselves in the great creation from both of these perspectives. And I want I want uh, folks to reflect on what Randall said. This is a deep psychological imperative. It's an existentialist imperative that Randall's talking about. When confronted by someone whose ideas are different from yours, there is a deep-seated trigger that isn't apparent in casual conversation but lurks beneath the surface nonetheless. That if the idea is sufficiently different it's intolerable. Is that true?
4: It's it's dangerously intolerable. I think we need to say that that it, it there is this psychological worry that one that the order of the world with which one deals is at risk if this other person's idea were to be adopted broadly, right or, or if the discipline were to actually if I were to take it seriously would it could up Heave my whole view of order and, and correctness, right so, so I want to maybe cite it might be
1: a facile example, but for those of us on the left, who primarily, I think is my listening audience um, an example of something that although we consider ourselves very open-minded and tolerant, the idea that someone could be walking around, espousing an ideal that effectively says you're not allowed to be open minded is something we don't want around it's something we find if if that were to take root to be terrifying and worthy of silencing right i mean this is the kind of thing we're worried about it's not you know political left or right you know uh the the Voltaire comment uh or you know subscribe to Voltaire i can't I, I don't like what you're saying, but I'll defend to the death you're right to say it. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's more existentialist and more threatening than that.
4: I but, love the way you just explained it, because I like to say religious conflict or deep ideological conflict might best be understood as the fear that one's loved ones could be deeply harmed.
1: That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay, that's that's, really that's really important because what you know for those of us who have shed not just an intellectual worry here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For those of us who have shed institutional ideology, let's say, you know, organized religion or um, or you know hierarchical political power structure or ideology or whatever, right? We are very inclined to believe ourselves to be equanimous. You know, like we accept a lot of things. We accept a lot of things. But there are some things we don't accept. And those are the things that, like, for example, environmental degradation is probably a big one for my audience. We don't accept that. That's not acceptable. And why It's ideologically not acceptable? Because we fear for our loved one. Now again as you as you're listening these aren't these aren't perfect examples cuz we're riffing on them on the fly here but I encourage you to to feel deeply into your ethics and recognize that what you think of as ethics is a form of an ideology and your ethics in many cases won't permit you to accommodate something that is in violation of those ethics. That's an ideological position. W- would you agree? Sure. Okay, so so this is what you
4: studied. Yes, I, I studied the various... And, <laughs> I believe, and no one can become an expert in yeah, 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 another yeah, yeah, religion, yeah, yeah. A, a single other religion, let alone various um, traditions that we tend to call these days world religions. But I... I took a few years, right. <laughs> 8 years actually, uh to go into the methods that m- many um traditions use and I found that the model for explaining this to your audience might best be the public health model that ideas are powerful, beliefs are powerful. They translate very quickly into attitudes and actions, to policies, politics, and social. And ultimately to institutions. Yes. I mean, the, the human, uh, if you're talking with someone who is not a reductionist, the body, the mind, the feeling, the heart, whatever you want, all interrelate all the time. So there is no such thing as a, an innocent thought in that sense. Innocent in that it doesn't have a ramification. Ramifications, exactly. And with that as background, I'll just say that um, it doesn't take a philosopher or a social theorist like you and I are to understand that people are worried about being contaminated by foreign substances that could cause them sickness, whether that sickness is pollution of the the air and the body and and the water or of irrational thought, pollution of stupidity or pollution of spiritual wrongness, Mm. what we might call moral or ethical pollution. And rather than being in a world where everybody is celebrating, that's the word we like to say, celebrating diversity Mm -hmm. of the global interactivity, there is this, as you called it earlier, under the surface, there is a very human, and therefore in in one sense forgivable for everyone, concern if not fear. Panic. (laughs) That that which we hold dear is being contaminated and corrupted. And and therefore, the center, as Yates said, isn't holding in our lives. And we're very worried about our children and our grandchildren and the environment, broadly speaking, for all life, if that's your ultimate concern, right? right? right. And we're worried that, therefore, what we say and do in public can have really deleterious effects. and, And the whole movement out of the 80s and 90s for political correctness was again a an understandable and I call it forgivable, but wrong movement that tried in various contexts to keep people from saying certain things, right? Because we know that that influences how we think and feel. So why was it wrong? I think it was wrong in that it was not self-aware. It was that was the wrongness. I'll explain when one group. Religion, ideology, political, social, caste, whatever it is, has enough power to be able to speak for us, the big us, in blanket terms, the we, that group tends to be in a bubble that is not self-aware, that it is taking a position that is controversial. That there, there are other sides to it. That they tend to be in the ocean, and the water uh, that they're in is not identifiable. Yeah, is not identifiable. That's that's, mm, that's yeah. yeah, that so, old, old that old yeah. analogy. And so the danger there is, we're not silencing anybody. <laughs> you know, we're just we're just speaking the truth. We're you know it's this other stuff is just dangerous. It's it's a colonial perspective, right? That the
1: privileged class, the privileged culture. Uh, has a colonial notion of what reality is. They don't know they're privileged. They don't, and of course they don't know they're privileged.
4: Right? <laughs> they don't see themselves as privileged, right? Right, right? And and that that's what I'm saying. The, the, that therefore political correctness usually is that in 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 a, in a university, for example, University of Chicago prided itself on saying we allow all crazy voices here. And they would, they would, you know, in other words, um, they tried to avoid political correctness during the political correct movement, right? But other universities would literally hire or fire based on what one's political or social or religious position was on the subject. And they had the right to do that. I mean, that's... Sure, sure, yeah. Sure. I'm just saying that... So, so claim they weren't aware of doing that in the context that there were other... Potentially valid critiques of their own view that's fundamentalism and it's it's a weird thing to to see a weird form of intellectual fundamentalism among people who who declaim
1: fundamentalism yeah or hate fundamentalism right 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 um, <laughs> so this is a bit of a a bit of a tangent, but i want to poke on it a little bit because i you know people understand political correctness and they and they understand we perceive that there's benefit to it. And as you said, there are some ideas that we feel
4: are uh that are that
1: are influential and negative.
4: Negative dangerous therefore for for a future that you want to see, that you think it would help from your point of view the most people flourish. Let's just use that. Sure. That right. right. So ethical critique. So what do we
1: do instead of political correctness since that happens to be the tool we are we are using and feel most adept at using, even though we understand most of us understand that there that there's some weird uh, border line that we cross and start, it starts to you know um, have a chilling effect on open conversation. What do we do instead?
4: Well, the
1: I mean, is there is there something to do instead? Yes, there, are, there
4: there is. There really is something to do instead, and um, and that is to um, embrace. a a new way of openness between human beings where the goal for communication is authenticity and intimacy, what might be called a deep reality. And the way to go there very simply is to agree to have no conversations that are not presaged by a disclosure of one's motives as many of one's motives as one can disclose. Remember, I, you're talking to someone who is a social psychologist and not a reductionist, and therefore I have no problem saying, you've got many motives right now. I do, I do. I want to I look good on this, on this broadcast. Right. I, I want to influence you in various ways. Um, don't want to be stupid. You know, I mean, there, there are all sorts of motives that are going on in me. And if I can say, here are my motives, and you will listen to those, and then you will explain yours to me, something immediately happens when we go quickly to our motives, our purposes for engagement, and they're plural, and we probe each other, something begins to happen with our communication. That very activity shows that we are beginning to trust each other at a different level than political correctness, which only allows certain things to be said. At the emotional level, we are already going deep, and and complex, and it sets the stage for being able to do that intellectually and ideologically.
1: Okay, so I want to... You sent me some material prior to our uh, getting in the studio. You said, the deepest aspect of human influence is at the level of desire. The deepest aspect of human influence is at the level of desire. Now, something about the disclosure of motives makes me want to understand that statement it brings that statement up for me there i have i have some desire that is that is apparent or maybe not apparent but is present in my motives how is that the deepest aspect of human influence at the level of desire you said we sense intention purpose passion in each other and these desires move us to desire what the other desires in a kind of circle of feeling this is complicated stuff Can
4: you explain this a little bit? Yes. Rene Girard began as a uh, literary critic and moved into uh, what might be called critical anthropology and even uh, psychology. He was moved by Shakespeare initially, in which, in in, in reading Shakespeare, he saw that some of Shakespeare's characters seemed to intuit the desire of other protagonists before any speech occurred and therefore they were moved by that desire to act in certain ways or to respond in certain ways and, and um as a social psychologist i would agree that what that science is coming to a point now by the way to corroborate this that there's a nonverbal communication that occurs between human beings where we sense someone's desire both bodily and what we'd call emotionally, intellectually, before anyone's mouth even opens, um, you sense that there's an agenda in which you are implicated in the other person's mind and heart. And that agenda is more important than anything you say. If you're sitting at a table eating together, that's more important than anything you can say. At some anf- deep anthropological level, you know the other person desires to be seen as a human being who is your equal in the sense that you both eat, and you're sitting at the same table, and you're spending time together. This, and and that person desires you to listen to their to desire him, to, the, to to feel that in you. That's right, and and we, to respond. We, and what, we do. And we. Do, we uh, biologically, biologically, uh,
1: psychologically, emotionally, we do almost without cognition. We don't, That's right. And,
4: and, and, and involuntarily. And if that person glances off or his body's moving a certain way, you can say, that person is bored with me, doesn't want to be here at all. On the other hand, you can sense, that person's into me. I, I love being in that person's presence because that person wants to know what I'm feeling. Wants to know what my desires are. That person, in other words, is open to my feelings and desires as well. And that's the, that's the, the preamble for any deep conversation. Is If you have that experience with somebody, your heart and mind are automatically, so to speak, open. You want to go because you feel safe. You feel trust. This is what we call authentic intimacy. What, what if it's the other person's agenda is toxic to you, that will be also felt. That will also be felt and you'll close down. Uh, And one of the things we do in our work is we realize some people have, if not most of us, have a mixture of motives, a mixture of desires. And so the question becomes, what is your primary motive? What one wins out in our relationship, right? And this is really, I mean, this is great stuff we're talking about because if you can sit down with your lover, your wife, your friend, and realize even they, at any given moment, might have a mixture of of desires uh, to influence you and to receive your influence, that some of them might be a little toxic and some of them could be wonderful, right? And that's why I'm not giving you a fix or a formula here except to describe the awareness of this allows for intentional development of more trusting relationships where you can knowingly say, all right, now I'm going to express to you what we're feeling, what you've already felt. I now want to express to you what my motives are. I'm going to put words around these desires. Hmm. I love the way, by the way, you grabbed Something that I tried to tell you earlier, how motive and desire are so linked
1: motive and desire are very very, very closely
4: linked. linked. Motive is kind of the explanation we like to give around this less Explicist. explicable explicitly yeah. explicable thing we call desire right it's the the Greeks would call it eros, not the eros necessarily of um but
1: not sexual eros. sexual eros,
4: but that deep desire for something more for change in, in human beings um we try to put that in categories that okay so makes sense
1: so not, so now we're talking about your methodology for getting people to engage, which has a kind of structure to it, and you're saying the expression of motive. To the extent that one can be, I mean, th-
4: it does depend on authenticity. There, Oh yeah, right, yeah, and that also remember it's a loop. We're always checking each other's authenticity, but non-verbally we feel it. So, ultimately self awareness is a
1: huge catalyst here and lack of self awareness is a huge drag yes. on having a conversation with someone who is who you who you don't immediately align with
4: right that's right you don't tend to trust someone who isn't competent enough to know what they're really thinking and feeling, that they're confused, they're not centered, they're, you know, they're, they're, ah, this you see what really, I'm saying? This is
1: really interesting.
4: They don't know what their motives are. They can't express them. It's, it's it's kind of dangerous to deal with that kind of a person. Why is it dangerous? I think it's dangerous because the if you open to that person and you are wrong in assessing their if they don't know their desires and their their motives, if they're not, if you're not convinced that they are aware of them, then you're not convinced either. And if you could give them either emotional or intellectual information that they could abuse in in that relationship with you, so so it's a trust thing.
1: Yeah, and I think there's, uh, I want to, I want to say something here about preparation for a conversation that is likely to be challenging and it comes down to being willing to be as desperately self-aware of your motives as you possibly can because mm-hmm. you can't bring your you can't you can't what is it you can't bring your your emotional charge you can't bring your emotional power you can't bring your psychological spiritual power into a conversation you can't bring it to bear efficiently if you're not really aware of why you're there yes
4: that's beautifully said and and at at the level of the circle of influence of feeling that interlocutor will feel that in you and will not feel confident to open
1: Right, right. So this is this is how a conversation can go south really fast. That's because right. Because you're actually not being intellectually honest about. Not even. I don't even want to say intellectually honest. You're. You're. If you're not capable of being aware of your motives, then the way you engage the conversation
4: is going to be disingenuous yes. at a very fundamental level. Yes, yes, yes. No matter how polite you are, no. You've got it. You've got it. That feeling there will be there. The 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 confused yeah, the feeling. Other, and That's so it. the
1: other guy is not gonna the other guy's gonna know that. Yep. And and is gonna look at you askance and, and has be suspicious,
4: suspicious of your motives. Exactly. Yeah. And worry yeah. that wow what he what he or she had hoped would be perhaps an authentic and deep exchange is too dangerous. It not gonna go there. I'm not gonna go there with this person. And so you just went in, by the way, whether you know it or not, you went into our methodology, which is before you have a conversation with someone that might be, as you said, difficult. By the way, this could be with a spouse, a kid, uh, uh, a political opponent, uh, a religious critic, whatever you know, whatever your thing is. <laughs> someone of you know, a Dodger fan. anybody anybody <laughs> who challenges you, right? Yeah, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. um, you begin by getting centered. We like to say you go to your quiet space, where you self-assess. If you believe in God, you or gods or spirits, you try to connect there. If you don't, you connect with your most authentic self, and in that quietness, you assess your motives for that conversation, your your honest wishes for what you want to occur in terms of change, both in yourself and in the other person. Now, what happens if you realize that your motivations are
1: aggressive or unduly uh, antisocial? You know what I mean? mean, No, 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 I'm with you. I'm with you completely. But even in approaching a conversation with a family member or uh, an intimate or uh, somebody at work, right? Somebody in a power structure. Right. We can find ourselves in places where... We don't like our condition, and we're, and we're ornery about it, and we want to change it, but there's no socially safe yeah. way to do that. And so our motivations are at cross-purposes with our tool set.
4: Yeah, and the power structure, yeah. if you will. So what do we do? The problem you bring up is, is unresolvable, but it is acknowledgeable. And it's in that acknowledgement where you've got the spiritual, intellectual, emotional guts to have that conversation both with yourself and then with the other party as a preamble to your conversation. It works a lot. Sometimes it doesn't. But when you go there, I'll give you a couple of examples. In one of our first dialogues, this happened 20 years ago, uh, we decided we would Uh, this is a group of what we might call true believers of different religious convictions who were adamant believers. And I think there were four different religious persuasions. And we had name plates in front of them around a, a table. And on the name plate, it had, I'm George Jones. My religion is superior to yours. I'm here to persuade you of it. And then a little a little in parentheses and to allow you the same privilege (laughs) (laughs) right okay (laughs) it was when we when we when they sat down at the table and saw their name tags it was bracingly refreshing we had nailed it because they were all we we'd already figured we'd interviewed them all and they were all if you will missionary persuaders right that they were convinced the other guys are going to hell and it was their job to help them out of that problem, right? Uh, or the other guy was unenlightened and it was their job to bring them enlightenment. And it, that really helped enormously, that disclosure of their motive to persuade the other. Because I, I had the light that was lighter than theirs, quote unquote. The meeting went extremely well. Extremely well. Uh by the way, it was very important that that parenthetical comment, they'd all agreed in advance to share the floor to the extent their integrity allowed by openly listening and carefully listening to their, if you will, religious critic or opponent. That's very difficult. That's a, we can go into that conversation later. But it goes along with this comment we had earlier of contamination are we wise or even ethically correct to allow another person to influence our heart and mind by opening that much to them? To sitting at the table and truly listening to them so that I might be persuaded that my superior faith to which I've given my whole life is gulp, maybe flawed in some respect? You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. so. It's and and by the way where uh, is where where is the
1: ethic there of integrity uh, yeah and I want to I want to reiterate to our listeners that th- for those of you who like me are saying inside that's because these people are crazy because there is no true one single right religion that's an ethic that we hold that we have to be willing, if we're going to if we're going to operate according to Randall's code, we have to be willing to bring that to the table and allow ourselves to admit and welcome even the possibility that someone might influence us to rethink
4: that notion. At least, to some extent, that you just beautifully described what has to happen.
1: And that's for, for it, all of us. For all of us. So 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 for, for We're uh, all in a bubble. Yeah, we're all <laughs> right. And and I think it's really important for those of us who have stepped out outside the traditional bubble to acknowledge to become aware that we stepped outside of one bubble and into a different kind of bubble. And if we're expecting our counterparts who we think are ignorant fools or just, you know, living in the last century or whatever it is, to come to the table prepared to listen to us. We have to risk the same kind of vulnerability in order for the table to be balanced. And I I honestly, you know, I think about this a lot and and I, I find myself in a weird place politically because, you know, for those of you who listen, you know I think Republicans are crazy you know that not uh, sorry let me say that differently you know that i think that the republican policy decisions and platforms are crazy and yet i know a lot of smart people who are republicans and so i have to ask myself what am i missing what am i not experiencing that they're experiencing and i've become in a sense a uh, a devil's advocate in in liberal conversations uh conversations with my liberal friends where I take the Republican position and really poke hard at what assumptions we're making versus the assumptions that they're making, and trying to be open so that I can not stay in the bubble. i really I find it, it clearly it's not been very successful for us as a country to stay in our bubbles right we're 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 at toxic gridlock levels all over the place, and we have really critical problems that need solving. And so I really have try to dig into this place of setting aside my presumptions about what's obviously true, because a bunch of it is obviously true to me, and yet I have to be willing to drop my guard and engage somebody else's obvious truths at face value.
4: Uh, That was beautifully said, John. And what I'm trying to say here is, what we're from a social, social psychological standpoint, and maybe spiritually speaking, it's impossible not to be you. The whole idea of bracketing that's used in philosophy, we bracket aside our presumptions. That's a total reductionist statement, as if you can somehow bracket aside a part of you That is not. uh, uh, Where is your feeling level? Where is your thought level? Where do these things occur in the body? In other words, the only hope we have—I well, I say the only. So far, William James. So far, it appears (laughs) that our highest hope is for us to disclose our desire, our wish that we could get out of ourselves to really get into you, but we can't. And to merely say that to another human being. uh, it melts their heart and mind. They feel safe with you because you are not claiming that you can become them. You're only claiming you wish you could so that you could understand them fully. But since you can't, you're having this conversation. You are, you are listening as hard as you can listen. You can't set aside your values. You can't bracket your feelings. But you can knowingly admit that they're there and influencing you, and that you actually could change if you opened your heart to the other person, you or could or change, you, or
1: you suspect that, that you, suspect you, or you, and it might be even even a philosophical statement that intellectually I'm willing to consider the possibility that I could change. Yes, because you might there, not actually feel it. That's right. But you you want to make you want to make the the offer. That's it. Even if you're not sure, you can follow up. That's right. Right. And and okay. And, so on that note. Let's take a short break, and, okay. and we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at FireflyWillows.com. Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasella, in spirited conversation with Charles Randall Paul, founder of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy and chairman of the World Table. So, Randall, right before the break, we were talking about uh, disclosing motives and and the challenge of, of, of acknowledging that... Well, the, the, personally, the difficulty I might have... It, Claiming, even, that I'm willing to be influenced. Because deep inside, I'm really maybe not. Because I know I'm right. So, what, so where does that lead us?
4: Um, the disclosure of that statement to your interlocutor, your critic, your opponent, is so honest and authentic to say, uh, you know, I'm having a hard time here honestly telling you that I'm open to your influence because I think you're so wrong and I think I'm so right that uh, I don't know if with integrity I can say that to you. That very statement at the intellectual level might, to some people, be off-putting. Like, oh, you're not really open. Yeah, you're not really here for that. You're not really... But at the emotional level, it is so real that you've done the trick. You've, the wall falls down at the emotional level because the other person sees you just the same way. <laughs> that that they know in their integrity, they don't want to change. They've got their position, that they whatever it is that they've come to after a life of experience and thought. And, and they're satisfied with it pretty much. And so you have just spoken for them too. And therefore your heart's, amazingly, are more aligned than your heads. You're both admitting to the humility, if you will, of being human, of having this desire to influence and be influenced, but worried about it, deeply worried about it. Mm. Because you you think you're right and the other person's wrong, and you're, there's not too much question in your mind there. And so I like to call it the conflict of integrities, where you do see yourself as someone who wants to influence the world for, and another person for the better, And in order to get that chance, you've promised to be open to that person's influence. Otherwise, that person isn't going to come to the table Uh to to allow you to influence them. And so it's this mutuality, this reciprocity, which is, by the way, perhaps the oldest ethic of civilized humanity is just the simple idea of reciprocity. You don't steal from me, I won't steal from you. You don't kill me, I won't kill you, right? We can trade, right? Right. That's the deepest level. You don't take my spouse, I won't take yours. Well, this this reciprocity idea is at the heart of what we're talking about here. If you, if I'm going to sit down at the table to endure your influence, the price right. of admission is it's got to be reciprocal. And yet, you've just explicitly, and I think eloquently, said
0: that's hard.
4: Yeah, it's it, hard. It's hard to be open to someone who might contaminate you or you think is so, so wrong that there, there can't be a way. And you're saying this is necessary. Yeah, it's necessary we exp- that we sit with those people and that we feel this difficulty together. Why do we have to feel the difficulty? At that level where trust really begins. When you, because the desire for the well-being of the other person is felt in that moment. In other words, when the other person is being seen as a a subject that you care about when you're authentic with that person, not an object that needs to be converted, a bother that needs to be put aside. Mm. You see, most people have the idea that persuasion is all about solving a problem, getting the bother out of the way so we can go forward. But in this kind of conversation, persuasion is never-ending. It's, it's. do you care about me? Are you willing to endure a continual bother that might never be resolved? At that level, if the answer is yes, you've solved an enormous problem in the world. Okay, so how do you get... Because no longer do you want to silence or eliminate that bother. You are willing to somehow continually engage it cuz you feel a mutual respect and care How between do you, you. Okay. So so that so I get that. Um
1: it can happen in marriage, it can happen wh- in friendship. What's it, the exercise can happen
4: between rivals?
1: What is the exercise that you do to endure the bother? Right? And we are talking about like irreconcilable differences
4: <laughs> that are
1: profoundly important.
4: <laughs> right? Amen.
1: And and so you're you're what you're saying not is, just
4: academic stuff no, right in is, the mind of either right. party no
1: this is this is stuff you feel in your gut right? yep. you feel in your gut like oh man I just huh, I don't really I'm not comfortable in this condition right
4: right what do you do well um, I like to say first of all let me give you my own uh, ideological bias here I like to say that most people think about love. And care as a a state of pleasant compatibility. Yes. And uh, I come out of a tradition, Christian tradition, where I take the the great Sermon on the Mount quite seriously. When when Jesus said, "Hey, you know, if you love your friends and family, you get no points for that. Even the Pharisees and the hypocrites do that, right? I'm telling you, you got to love." Those who despise you, those who mistreat you, those who are your enemies. You get points for that. And most people think of that as an impossibility, as something for only the saints and angels. But I have come to conclude it's a very pragmatic fact that real love only develops in a tested Unresolvable circumstance where you have to have at some level of in your heart, you have to say, In spite of that, I will care about your well being and wish for and act for your good and want the same reciprocal in spite of all these other pressures. That's what love is. To me, that's what the Christian idea was, that love is manifest only in these unresolvable incompatibilities.
1: That is a weird, and so, that's
4: a weird perspective. That's a weird perspective, and, and you'll have to go with me. I might be wrong about it, by the way. I'm open to your influence, John, if you want to take me on. I really am on that. I, I'm, I'm experimenting with this in my own life and, and, and observations of, of those around me. But um, it's, a, it's a new way forward to interpret things that way because it allows for the possibility that we live like John Gottman says we live with a, a compatibility we for many years we lived in a compatibility model of good marriage and it caused enormous numbers of divorce because people felt like well this isn't the way it's supposed to be we have drifted apart we have you know, we are no longer on the same page, right? Whereas Gottman found that long-term marriages, for the most part, never resolve two, what did what he 67% of the conflicts in long-term successful marriages are never resolved. The couple learns how to revisit them with integrity without beating each other up. There is a methodology to this of, of if you will, civility, but they allow the other person to continue to push back in the wholeness of their relationship they don't require resolution on two-thirds of the things. They, they just allow each other to re-engage. And so I used Gottman's work in my work to see if that could work also for politics and religion, where we changed our expectation of the game plan, of what the goal was. If the goal is not resolving conflict, <laughs> but using it richly in our lives to prove that we care about each other, that's a very different way of seeing the world.
1: Okay, this is really interesting. If the goal is not to resolve conflict, but to use it as a way to demonstrate that we care about each other, that sounds almost paradoxical. How do we use conflict to illuminate our care for one another?
4: You earlier said, John, that this is not child's play. We're talking about issues that are gut-level issues for people. Um, things that affect in their mind, if you will, if they're religious, their salvation in the worlds to come; if they're um, political, the flourishing of mankind on the planet, or at least in our country, or at least in my neighborhood.
1: Right. 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 Yeah. Absolutely.
4: Again, they're things that matter. Um, I'll just say that when you can find someone who is willing at that level of seriousness, to not silence you as a critic. That says, that person cares about me. He cares about my ideas, even though he cares about me, my thought, my feelings, so much that he is willing to be open to the possibility, me influencing him in a way that's very scary. You want them in your life. You desire them. To influence you is what I'm getting at. So, so two things come up for me. One, one is about safety
1: in the presence of vulnerability. And the, and the other is about vulnerability itself. And that it is somehow in the act of declaring one's self vulnerable that the conversation, the interaction between two people, leaves the realm of i want to say leaves the realm of the intellect or the conceptual and becomes biological and and that vibration that that interpersonal connection is it's i'm 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 it's hard for I'm I'm reaching for this and it's it's hard for me to articulate that for all of the all of the the bluster and aggression that we muster to defend our ideals and ideas the declaration of vulnerability it's like it it's like it drops down another level and almost compels as we said earlier you talked about this this reflection and the mirror neurons i don't know whether we mentioned it during the show but we talked about mirror neurons before the show that my willingness to be vulnerable to you affects you in an inescapable way
4: that's it, it this is this is gandhi this is so much gandhi when you you think of him as being this this passive resistor this wimpy guy right he turned over the whole, the most powerful country in the world at the time. He was all about influence, but he was able to see that he could move human hearts and minds. Yeah, if they, if, hearts. If if hearts first, then minds and policies, mm, right? Right. Um, by his satagreya, his openness to the influence of his opponents. He would sit with them and honestly listen to them, try to take their point of view so that he could absorb it into his life. He would go to other religious groups and try to understand their view. This this literally you've just said it. This disarms. It it drops. And, the and, wall. and it's not just and it's not just an intellectual disarmament. No, no. It's, it's an it, inevitable biological disarmament. That's the it has to be resisted. It's not inevitable because there is something within the human I'll call it soul that can say even though my walls are dropping, I'm going to build them. I'm, I'm going to build them back up right now. Mm, right, mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like this. Uh, we would agree that when Jesus said we've got to become like little children to get into the kingdom of God, think about you talking with a child, say a six-year-old child, and having a, a, an honest conversation with that child. That child is all ears. You're an adult, and that there's a trust level there, and that moves you to care about that child. In fact, we would all of us, I think, listening would feel it utterly despicable for us to use to that like vulnerability, that, the the call for us to drop our walls and be real with that child, to use it and abuse that child. We all go. Ugh.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah.
4: I belong like Jesus said, that person who abuses a child should have a millstone around his or her neck and thrown in the depths of the ocean. He was pretty clear mm. about that. Yeah. Now why? Why? Because that is what screws the world up when anybody, it doesn't have to be a child, when you act childlike, when you call the other person to be authentic like you are and you resist that, that's evil because you know somehow in your heart that this could change the world this could change me i could somehow be different if we were both this way and for various motives and we could talk about those motives many of us including me at times wants that wall to remain even though i'm being called by the desire of the other to safely drop it hmm. so
1: okay so this conversation is is fascinating uh, and I want to run, we're going to run a little bit longer because there's, there's some more stuff I want to get to. Um, you have tried this technique in various places and you've had uh, this experience in various cultures. Can you share a couple of examples? I mean, you've been around. Yeah. Right? And and in fact, you've been around in some pretty uh, uh, places that are in the news. <laughs> yeah.
4: I've been to Iran in dialogues over there about three years ago and, uh, at, anyhow, I've been to China and and I've learned how ignorant I am of the ability to communicate in this authentic way uh, cross culturally.
1: Uh, Is it harder to communicate authentically cross culturally or it, inauthentically? cross <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, a, a real like I, I, that it's really important. I, I, I bring that up because um, we can we might say. That you know this whole notion of authentic conversation um isn't worth it because we're not because it's not it's not as effective as saber rattling or or uh castigation or you know bully pulpit or whatever
4: yeah i th- i think um yeah, here we here we mix what you might call bioscience with cultural uh, conditioning um my theory is that what we call the human has a similar bioscience with respect to desire and influence that is felt non-verbally between human beings. That's my theory. And therefore, um, everything I've discussed with respect to uh, sitting down, quote-unquote, with someone and having those feelings uh, expressed is cross-cultural. It's a cross-cultural phenomenon. However, if sitting down... In America means across the table from somebody in casual clothes sharing a pizza. If that would be seen as utterly disrespectful, that would lead nowhere uh, other than inauthenticity in China where we're supposed to, uh, let us just say, kneel with tea between us. Um, We have to take that all into account. To be more explicit about what actually happened to me, and one of my first conversations where I was trying to teach this method in uh, Chinese uh, uh, at the uh, Center for um, Social Sciences in in Beijing, uh, about uh, this would have been about seven years, eight years ago, um, I was using my old American way of kind of disarming the crowd by uh, talking about some of my own foibles. Uh, showing them that I was li- I was dropping my wall, showing my imperfections, and instead of getting smiles and 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 vibes of relaxation from the audience, I was getting blank stares. In fact, stronger feelings of walls hmm. that were going okay. up. Right. And I I my Chinese colleague afterwards said that was an utter failure, Randall. You, your words were saying you know, we've got to be real with each other or we're not going to have anything happen here. You missed the whole cultural way of getting there. You had to have that conversation privately with these individuals. You couldn't do it in a group of 20 colleagues. That was disrespectful, you see, of of them. That is not the way you get to authentic relationships here. And so I learned a lot that different preparations are required in different cultures for this thing to happen that I'm talking about is this intimate reality of exposure of multiple motives and and the desire to be real with one another and to create change and the fear of change actually occurring, all those things happening.
1: Uh also, oh, real
4: cultural work, John. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you
1: also had an experience in Russia. You were telling me about that earlier.
4: Oh in Russia it was it was the saddest moment of probably my my uh, well the second saddest, the saddest was coming home from Egypt a few years ago. But uh, in um, in Russia, knowing what I knew coming out of China, <laughs> I thought I would get my act together. And, and when we went to uh, St. Petersburg for some conferences a few years ago and in Moscow with an academic uh, group of people, um, I was careful, I thought. To speak a little more um, in line with the way Russians speak, and afterward, my colleague who helped me with with uh, organize the uh, the deal sat me down and said, "Randall, that that was beautiful. You did a beautiful job, but you understand that." you didn't get much response from the audience, did you? They heard you. I want you to know you spoke to their hearts. But this is Russia. And Russia is so used to having informants use any kind of authentic, honest speech against you later on for personal gain. It's so much part of the culture. Still today, After perestroika and glasnost, it's still there. It's one of the saddest moments in my life to have this great colleague say, it isn't going to work here until the culture itself is ready to take that risk. You're you're not going to get people, even in families still, to be deeply honest with each other. They're just too ingrained with this fear. So what
1: do we do as a as a
4: and of course I'm stereotyping it oh, but yeah, yeah, I I'm, yeah. I'm, I trust my colleagues over there that generally speaking I've verified this now from other Russian colleagues of mine that this is a general well, a reality so, in their culture and it's
1: and it makes perfect sense I mean if you lived if your culture has lived through stalinism yeah uh, you know it's a it's pretty dark right right, right. Uh, so so as global citizens right I mean here we are uh, in America, having you know, we have our problems, but we don't have you know that, right? Um, how do we geopolitically embrace our human brethren across these pretty dramatically incorrigible cultural chasms?
4: The way we would do it. Um, the, the the method goes back to the discussion we were having in the first half hour of this conversation. The next time I go to Russia, You're going to acknowledge that. I will acknowledge that. Uh-huh. I will acknowledge that. Publicly and in private. And I will say, um, to the extent that affects our conversation, let it be so. I cannot make... My reality, your reality. But I want you to know that I understand to the extent I can that that is affecting our conversation. And I, I respect you no less because of that problem. And I see you perhaps as seeing me as someone who is blissfully unaware of the freedoms I have to speak in my culture the way I do. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's and, what it is, right? And, and, and there it is, it's on the table. And and you will feel, I, I am convinced then, that emotional wall will drop. Even if the conversation doesn't right, go right, there. Right, right, the emotional right. wall. And remember, everything I've talked to you about today is the, when the emotional wall goes down, the world changes. You no longer have the desire to think of the other as an idiot. They might be deeply wrong, but they're not idiots. You no longer desire to be totally suspicious of them because you feel that they do have a motive to care about you, right? You're worried that their their method is going to screw things up, but it's you don't want to kill them. You don't want to quarantine them. You want to somehow keep them in the conversation because that emotional wall now is down where you have at least that level of trust. Wow, that's and, powerful. and that's And that's why we say you can then be... Trustworthy opponents. Trustworthy rivals. You have to resist each other because you know they're still wrong and they know you're still wrong, right? <laughs> but you do it in a way that keeps them in the ring. You do not bloody them. You want them in the ring because you want, you're, you,
1: you want to care for them.
4: You, you care for them. You want any change to occur to be, I like to say, a change given freely to you. Right, not coerced. Not coerced.
1: Right. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time. It, and this has been a fabulous conversation, and I hope we have more.
4: I'd love it too, John.
1: Um, are there any last thoughts you want to share with our audience about the the work you're doing, the 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 guts of this stuff?
4: Yeah, I, I would just. Uh, I think I'd like to summarize by saying, um, if your life, if you if you're feeling bored, same old, same old. Find someone who really disagrees with you and try out a deep conversation with that person where you are both prepare yourself the way I kind of described here. You will come away invigorated. You will come away finding perhaps a a place for a new definition of love or at least care in your soul that will challenge you but make your life much more interesting, much more interesting. So I'd leave you with that as a thought.
1: Okay. And and if folks want to get to know you and or your work a little bit better, where should we direct them?
4: Uh you can communicate with me at my email address. I'll give that publicly. It's randall at worldtable.co. Sometime in the future I'd like to talk to you about what we're doing very practically at the World Table to encourage uh, authentic conversations uh, on despicable comment boards all over the internet but that's, uh, that's for another time yeah they can contact me at randall at
1: thank you so much for joining us Randall it's been a fabulous time thank you John and we'll be right back
0: a personal tarot reading can offer you insight information enlightenment and empowerment along your life's path Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years experience He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal Tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhic.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com.
1: Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Wow. Love, intimacy, vulnerability, challenging stuff. I'd like to encourage you to consider doing what Randall suggested. Go out and have an open, vulnerable conversation with your motivations disclosed, with someone whose views are very different from your own. And if your guard goes up, consider Mildred Lynn's question. What exactly are you guarding? Enjoy the remainder of the summer, and we'll catch you again in September. Until next time...
0: Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carasella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle-Lizney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m.